Note. This is a true crime story. Character dialogues are direct quotations. In an effort to accurately represent sources, some cited opinions are depictions of a past social sentiment and do not represent the beliefs of the content creator. In addition, this contains violent and dark subject matter. Listener discretion advised. Lunchbox of Annapol Terra is discovered. Find increases mystery of murder. Officers believe girl knew her assailant. Welcome, dear listener, to LA 1909, a true crime podcast uncovering a city's history through a murder mystery. Over the next several episodes, a Los Angeles homicide investigation will be reconstructed using early 20th century records and newspaper articles. The case is that of a young girl, a working-class immigrant's daughter, found murdered, an all-American L.A. sheriff, and a parade of suspects. On today's episode, a revolving door of accused citizens, amateur sleuths stymie the police, and a new clue sends investigators down a fresh path. I'm John E. Marino, and this is the Griffith Park Murder Mystery. Episode 3, Over Hallowed Ground. At Griffith Park, the district attorney's chief of detectives, S.L. Brown, escorts some new investigators on the case to the site of Anna's discovery in order to further comb the area and see what a pair of fresh eyes might find. After uncovering no new clues, they are ready to call it a morning, when just before noon, they come across an elderly man. His clothes are stained with some blood, and they learn he resides in a small homestead near the crime scene. They apprehend him and take him in to account for his whereabouts on the day of Anna's disappearance. A slew of suspects continue to come through the central station. Most of the leads, however, regard suspects matching the description of the Hispanic laborer seen by Martin Baumister. Saturday night, a Mexican who is said to have answered to the description of the murderer called at the home of J.W. Kurtz at Obispo and Elliott Streets near Signal Hill and asked the way to Bay City. There is a belief that the murderer did not linger long about the scene of the atrocious crime, but succeeded in the intervening days in making his escape to some section of the state. Then, there was the talkative man in the Sonora Town drinking hole downtown. A man, drinking heavily, bragged he had seen Anna Pulterra the morning she was murdered, close to where her body was discovered. He not so subtly hinted he had information regarding what had happened to her that fateful afternoon. Pressured to spill what he knew, the man became more withdrawn and simply said he could tell quite a story if he wanted to, but he didn't. The police are quickly flagged and the drunk is apprehended before he can leave the bar. He is taken to a cell and charged with drunkenness. The booking officer notates the word hold after the name Gutierrez. 
Gutierrez answers in a general way in both physical characteristics and dress to the description of the Mexican who was seen going along the road in the evening when the child was on her return from school. And it may be that he knows something pertinent about the crime. Today, when he becomes sober, he will be taken in hand by the detectives and any knowledge he may have will be forced from him. A few blocks away from Central Station, right across 3rd from the historic Bradbury Building, at 221 Spring Street, Henry Ponet, a printer at the Hotel Hollenbeck, leaves his downtown office and heads to the Polterra crime scene. Arriving just before 3 p.m., Ponet pokes around the park not even for a few minutes before realizing, in clear view, 200 yards from the road, less than 100 feet from where little Anna was found, and over territory searched by several hundred sleuths, amateur and professional, Anna's lunchbox sits, staring back mockingly in the Los Angeles sunshine. The remainder of Anna's belongings are scattered about, surrounding the lunch basket. Ponet quickly gathers up the evidence and sets off hunting for the nearest telephone. Finally getting through to Central Station, Ponet tells Sheriff Hamill he will bring the clues downtown. But before he can make his way there, he's intercepted by Detective Carey. Carey had been tasked with returning the elderly suspect that was hauled in earlier back to his cabin near the park. The other officers having determined the aged squatter was not their man. Carey picked up Ponet in the shiny red automobile and drove him to the office of the DA's chief of investigators. There, the detectives explored the recovered items. The lunchbox emptied of its contents, but closed and strapped. Her handkerchief, a mere bit of bordered cambric stained with childish fingerprints and crayon smears, but red. A cardboard box which had contained candy, but in which she had a package of drawing crayons, crayons wrapped in a piece of brown paper. A few small trinkets, such as a schoolgirl of her age would carry. Along with the crayons are a couple of buttons, little pieces of colored glass, and some string. A small lead pencil that Anna had sharpened with her teeth still bore tiny indentations on the dull end where she had chewed, and a teeny tiny memorandum book, evidently crafted by little Anna. The booklet is a series of small sheets of thin school paper, each folded and then placed within one another, sewn together with her childlike stitching. Inside, the pages are covered with notes from classmates and their names and addresses, the rest comprised of little Anna's schoolgirl poetry, lyrics of trees and birds and flowers. On the cover of the memorandum book is a crayon drawing of a marguerite, a common dill daisy. 
the yellow petals just a shade darker than the center disc. Above the flower, in innocent grade school scrawl, rest the words, the memory. The only other item discovered beside her personal effects was a copy of the May 17th afternoon newspaper that Anna was tasked with delivering to her father, John. John Polterra immigrated from a Swiss peasant village in the late 19th century and found himself in Colgrove, California, once a part of the Rancho La Brea settlement and now South Hollywood. John was naturalized as an American citizen in 1891, and four years later, at the age of 50, he wed 33-year-old, German-born, Mary Horder. Mary brought with her a son from a previous marriage. The three-year-old, Edward, was taken in by his stepfather and educated in the poultry-raising business. For many years, they ran a chicken ranch near Griffith Park's northern entrance, close to where Anna's body was found. Mary testifies to the Evening Express that on the afternoon Anna disappeared, John had been in Los Angeles picking up chicken feed. He passed the road where his daughter would later be discovered at around 3.30, arriving home at 4 p.m. Mary explains that leaving school at 3.30 Anna could not have made it the two miles to the vent house where she was found before her father had arrived home. Mary insists Mr. Polterra thought as much of Anna as he did of his own life. There is some wonder as to the identity of a man who has been frequently seen in the last six months driving along the road about 200 yards from the Polterra home. Mrs. Polterra could give no description of him as she had seen him only at a distance. She said Annie had told her that she had ridden with him a number of times in going to and from school. And each time she said, he was an awful nice man. He had given her candy on a number of occasions. He had not been seen since the tragedy. The reward for the capture and conviction of the murderer is now $1,850 upon the motion of Councilman Barney Healy. In Griffith Park's surrounding neighborhoods of Tropico, Glendale, and Ivanhoe, scores of citizen sleuths and amateur detectives make a nuisance of themselves knocking on doors of innocent residents at odd times of the night, waking them, then asking useless questions. Their acts have become so aggravating that residents of that vicinity crawl into their cellars and lock the doors every time a sleuth comes in sight. The wannabe investigators begin stopping residents on the streets to interrogate them, and even start looking at each other with suspicion. Their other method? is to dawdle after the real police detectives and broadcast those officers' movements and discoveries. Every man in the search is questioning his neighbor. It would have been almost impossible for a strange man to have sneaked into the immediate neighborhood of that brick vent without being noticed. And yet, the murderer or someone closely allied with him did sneak in there and leave the much sought for articles. 
the man who left the belongings of little Anna Volterra at a spot not 90 feet from where her body was found, was a man who could approach the place without attracting suspicion. A man who was identified with the searchers. A man who worked with them every day, whose face was known to the officers, who could go and come unquestioned. Still, some leading investigators did not adapt to the new clues. They maintained a preference for the Hispanic tramp lead, and even threw doubt on the authenticity of the recovered lunch pail. It has been suggested that some sensation seeker could imitate the lunchbox work and crude initials of the girl and easily obtain a similar copy of the paper. But such reasoning does not hold when it is considered that such a feat as duplicating the diary kept by the little girl could not be accomplished. This fact alone is positive proof. The articles taken from Anna Polterra at the time of her murder and later returned were the same. While sheriff's detectives and other officers continue their hunt out in the field, back in Los Angeles, medical investigator Coroner Hartwell began a line of inquiry into potential microscopic evidence. Hartwell surmised that given the extent of the girl's injuries, it would be impossible for the perpetrator to have accomplished his deed without having substantially covered his hands with blood. He further speculated the fiend then must have touched some part of Anna's clothing before making his escape. The police department is still in possession of the clothes, so Coroner Hartwell has them prepared to be sent for microscopic study by a fingerprint expert. The clothes were carefully examined for superficial marks and handprints at the time the investigation was begun. That investigation revealed nothing to the naked eye, it is quite possible that a microscopic examination may show other markings, and nothing will be left undone in the effort to obtain a clue in the perpetrator of this outrage. Since the arrival of the lunch pail and mementos, Sheriff Hamill begins assessing what their discovery means for the course of the investigation. I will not give up this case so long as I have a breath in my body. It may be hours, days, or months before this monster is captured, but I believe that he will be captured and made to say the penalty for this crime. I have some additional clues which are worth looking into, and I intend to take them up first thing in the morning. I will keep my men on the case as long as there is any hope of doing anything in the direction of capture. In an unusual display of restraint, the reporters won't reveal why, but do indicate the police believe that because of certain items inside the candy box found among Anna's belongings, the villain who mistreated her was familiar to the girl. They further speculate that she was killed to silence her as a result of her knowledge of the brute's identity. The fact also that the stomach of the little girl contained freshly eaten food indicates that she may have been enticed from the road and into the woods by some supposed friend and given something to eat as a prelude to the crime. One suspect 
growing more interesting to investigators as the case progresses, is a youth who had recently lived in the Tropico area, but since disappeared. The 18-year-old's name is Ben, and his father, B.F. Elliot, has been called to Los Angeles to help search for the boy. The man knew his son is suspected in connection with some recent burglaries, but was spooked to learn of little Anna's horrible murder. As a result of the discovery of Anna Polterra's personal effects, on ground recently searched by Chief of Detectives S.L. Brown and his investigators, the belief the culprit had been a local started gaining more and more credence. The officers are no longer looking for the Mexican said to have been seen close to the girl on the day the murder was committed as it is almost certain that this man could hardly have been guilty of the crime. Instead, the search today centered on Ben Elliott. The officials say they have knowledge that he is of a degenerate nature. There is much circumstantial evidence that the murder might have been committed by this boy. Next time on L.A. 1909. The thief then crawled under the structure and entered the store by going through a trap door under the show window. The officers say the wound in her throat might have been inflicted with such a knife as was stolen. What else he may have done, I do not believe him guilty of such a horrible murder. LA 1909 is an independent podcast written, directed, performed, and produced by John E. Marino. To support the podcast, please follow the link in the show notes. It also helps to comment, rate, and subscribe wherever you are listening. And follow our Instagram at Los Angeles Mysteries. Music, courtesy of Project Gutenberg Audio. Piano rolls by Scott Joplin and Claude Debussy. Other music performed by John E. Marino.